proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark 14, verse 12. Mark 14, verse 12 is where we'll pick it up. If you're using our Blue Bibles, it's on page 469. You'll find Mark's Gospel there and a particular chapter and verse that we're on. And We're titling this final section, these final few uh, chapters in Mark, this, In My Place, The Last Days of Jesus. And so we're, uh, we're not changing anything, even though it's the series is being changed, but we're not changing where we've been. We've been working our way through Mark. And in these last chapters, it really wraps up. Uh, it is the culmination of all the themes that we have seen uh, throughout the previous few chapters. We see Jesus' authority demonstrated once again by his teaching and his life. We see uh, attacks from the religious elite. We see the humanity of his disciples on display as one will eventually betray him and the others really don't even yet fully understand what it is that Christ came to do. This uh, end, These ending chapters here are the culmination of the theme verses of Mark. As we see Mark 10:45, when it says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And uh, Mark 8:26, Jesus called to that truth to his disciples. And he said, anyone who would come after me must what? Must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so in these last chapters here, uh, it is ending now in the reason why Jesus came. He came to die. You know, in the first eight chapters, we answered that question, who is this man? And we saw that Christ was unparalleled in power. He was unmatched in his authority. There was none like him in love and compassion and grace and mercy, intelligence, wisdom. He was perfect and blameless. In chapters nine through 13, we saw that Jesus Christ is Lord, Amen. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the reigning and returning king, the one who is promised from of old, the one who came to serve and to suffer, the one in order who came to save his elect. This is his mission. He came to live and to die in our place. And that is soon to be complete, that mission is, even though as we get into these chapters here, even though the Jewish religious leaders of that day and Judas with them scheming to stop that plan. But today's passage, here's really what it impresses upon us. As we begin to read it, as we get into it here in just a moment, it impresses upon us this overriding truth that everything is going according to plan. If you're taking notes, that's the, that's the whole message right here, is that everything is going according to plan. And this is a message that we need to hear even in our day, that Jesus is in complete control, that he was, com- he was commanding the ship of his life in that day, and he is still commanding the ship. He is running the show then, and he is yet running the show now. He always has been, and he always will be. Amen, church? Everything is going according to plan. So let's read our passage now. I want you to see this for yourselves. We'll be in uh, Mark 14, 12 through 26. You can follow along now as I read it here for us. It says this, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is God's word for God's people. So what do the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what do these have to do with the sovereignty of God and us today? I told you that what this passage impresses upon us is that everything is going according to plan and now we read it and you wonder, well, I thought this was about an ancient tradition. Well, really to answer that question, uh, we must both zoom in on the particulars and also zoom out to see the big picture of God's redemption plan. And while we do, like, let's do like we always do every week, is to draw out some of those takeaways for our life, shall we? Should we do that together? Yeah, come on, church, come on. I know you've lost an hour of sleep, but come on, <laughs> let's get after it. Well, here, to embrace that everything is going according to Jesus' plan, here's what it first means, that we must follow Jesus in the moment. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. If we're going to embrace that everything is going according to plan, we must then follow Jesus in the moment. You know, this passage really is no different than all of Mark's gospel here. We see that Jesus is running the show of his life. It comes, it's this first day, the unleavened bread, and the disciples are going to him and seeking his direction. What should we do? Where are we going to follow uh, you? Where are we going to celebrate this Passover meal? See, Jesus is running the, the details in the moment. He is leading his disciples. The timestamp tells us that it's Thursday, Good Friday will be the next day, the day that he uh, leaves, but uh, this is the day, that it is Thursday, it's the day before, and it's the Passover that is the reason why they, and really likely hundreds of thousands of other Jewish people are there in Jerusalem. And now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread really kind of are, even though they're two kind of separate events, they really kind of go together. The Passover being kind of the first thing and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread being the celebration after us. It was a huge memorial celebration for the people of Israel that they would all then uh, convene upon Jerusalem. You know, in some ways, there's not uh, entire overlap, but in some ways it's similar to our 4th of July traditions. It's similar, you know, as they would come and eat together and we, you know, we sacrifice hot dogs and watermelons and potato salad and beans and things and we have big fireworks uh, shows and parades and things. Why? And why do we do that every July 4th? To celebrate our, or to commemorate as we as Americans and our independence from Great Britain. It's become a national memorial and so uh, for the Israelites, 
in this day, this, this, this uh, commemoration goes back 1,500 years before these days. It was many years before that when Moses led all Israel and some two to three million Israelites, it's estimated, out from Egyptian slavery and into the promised land, eventually, after 40 years of wandering around. And on that night of their departure, or their exodus, right, where we get the name of the, that second book of the Bible, uh, on the night of their departure, God unleashed a horrible plague, the final judgment upon the land that killed all the firstborn across the entire land. None would be spared. None would be spared except, except by the mercy of God, those that took a one-year-old male unblemished lamb, sacrificed it, and spread its blood upon their doorposts. Only then would God, as he moved his way throughout the land of Egypt, destroying those that are firstborn, only then would he pass over that house. This is the Passover. And as they would take the lamb and it had killed, then they had ins- uh, more instructions. You can read this in Exodus 12, by the way, and you'll see mention of it all throughout your Old Testament then. But they would take that lamb and they would roast it over the fire to eat. And they would eat it with unleavened bread. And they would eat it with bitter herbs. And they would, uh, anything that they uh, had left over that they did not eat, they were to burn it. They were not to save any of it. And they ate as they, as they were eating. They were dressed and ready to go. This was not a meal of convenience and comfort that they would uh, uh, linger at the table with uh, shoes off or anything. No, they would be girded, ready to go as if they were packed for travel. Ever ate a meal like that, right? You're on the go, you're in the airport, you're, you know, you've got your backpack, you are ready for travel. Versus, you know, you kind of wake up in the morning or you come home after, after work in the day and, you know, your shoes are off and you linger at the table. No, they were packed and ready to go. And this, as they, uh, these instructions on that first Passover then became this commemoration, this God-appointed tradition for the people of Israel to remember his mercy to rescue them, for them to remember his judgment, his terrible judgment upon uh, those of hardened heart towards the Lord. And Jesus and his disciples had no doubt had celebrated this pretty, uh, probably every year of their life. They had celebrated it as, as children and now as uh, adults, but they don't live in Jerusalem, and so they need a place to gather. And so as we come back to the, the text here, you see what Jesus is, the disciples are asking, well, hey, where are we going to gather? And he says he sends two of his disciples, Luke tells us that was Peter and John, and he sends them to go make the preparations. He says, go do this and you will prepare the room. And that would entail like going, buying a lamb. Remember the temple is like a a big marketplace. They would have to go find this lamb. They'd have to take it to the temple. They'd have to wait in line with thousands of others. Just picture waiting in line and now everyone's just got their lamb. They're heading to the temple. The lamb would be killed. The blood would be uh, spread uh, on the altar there. And then they would take it home. And you can just imagine the smell of roasting lamb all throughout the city of Jerusalem. You imagine that every home of uh, an Israelite, uh, this roasting lamb just kind of wafting throughout. You know, it's kind of like at about 11:30 if you're driving down the loop. You know, 46 there in the Barbecue Central, where you know Rudy's and Blacks and Coopers and all that. There, if you're driving at 11:30 and the wind is just right and your windows are down, and you start smelling that, you know, mm, that smoky meat goodness. Now y'all are hungry. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder where everyone's going for lunch today. 
We can imagine this. He sends these two to go and to make the preparations, but he's a little coy about the details, isn't he? He says, just go into the city, and, and what does he tell him? He says, you'll, you'll find a man carrying a jar of water, and you'll meet him, follow him, and when you get to the house, then ask the master these questions. He's coy about the details, and some wonder about this. It's likely it's because he's trying to keep them hidden from Judas. He doesn't want Judas to know where they're going to go until they arrive because he knows what Judas is about to do, but he does give this unmistakable indicator, this man who would be carrying a jar of water, and we can read over that and not necessarily understand, but why is this significant? Because in that day, it was mostly women who would carry jars of water. They would go to the well, they would go to the stream, whatever they would go, and they would carry these jars of water back to the, back to the home uh, full of water. And you know, men would carry small pouches you know, to drink, like bladders uh, type things, and, uh, and yet this would stand out. It would be unmistakable in the crowds. Go find this man. And guess what happens? Jesus tells them what to look for, how they will make their preparations. In verse 16, look at it with me. The disciples set out, they went to the city, and what does it say? Get your pen and underline that so you never miss it again. What does it say? And they found it just as he told them. Church, everything is going according to plan. Everything is going according to plan in the moment. See, not just in these details here, but we can get into the last days of Jesus and sometimes we think like, oh man, this is so unfortunate. Like Jesus lived such a great life. He did all these great things. He was so nice to people and now he's got these enemies and they're so mean to him and like, isn't it just unfortunate that Jesus died? Just a, you know, a victim of unfortunate circumstances. Well, Mark is trying to show us over and over and over in this passage, everything is going according to plan. Christ is leading and directing not only the events of what is happening here at the Passover preparations, but in the lead up to his death on the cross. See, when Jesus speaks, church, we can be sure that it will happen. When Jesus speaks, we can be sure that it will happen. Proverbs 30, five and six say that uh, every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. And why do we doubt this? Why do do we doubt this? Why do we doubt when Jesus said in in Matthew 11 that he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I, what? I will give you rest. I will, and and, and Jesus said those words and yet we we may choose to just embrace our anxiety. We choose to go somewhere else and not to, to Christ where he is the prince of peace. He is the source of our rest. And if he says it, we can come to him and find rest in him. Why do we doubt this? Why are we afraid to proceed? Why are we afraid to step out in faith? Why are we afraid to step into the mission that God has called us to? Why are we afraid to be a light in the darkness? Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, when he tells us to go, therefore, and what? To make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And what does he say to that? What does he attach? What is, the, uh, what is our confidence in the command that he gives us there? He says, and lo, I will be with you always. You are never alone when you are living on mission. 
You're never alone when you are living out your faith. You are walking it out. See, this is faith, church. This is faith. This is the epitome of faith. It is, faith is believing Jesus, not just believing in Jesus. There's a massive difference than, than, than just saying, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus in a similar way that we would say I believe in Santa Claus or something. You know, or that, that, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus came, he died on the cross, you know, for sin and all that. But there's a big difference in saying, no, I believe Jesus came and died in my place. I believe his word and I'm going to live it out. I'm gonna follow him in the moments of my life. We must, we must follow Christ. We must take God at his word. He arranged the details of his life and he continues to, to work out the details of our own life. Do you know this, that he always has a purpose? He always has a plan? He is always deliberate in the working out of his will in and through you? Yes, even in tragedy, even in epidemics, even in the minutia of your life, God is involved. And we can follow him in the moments. This is why, as I prayed earlier, why we don't need to fear things like coronavirus. Do we make preparations? Are we wise and prudent, church? Yes. Yeah? Do we, do we you know, monitor these things? You bet. But we do not fear. We trust God, we trust God in the moment, knowing that he has a plan. Even in terrible events, we can respond with trust in the Lord. We can believe that God is at work. And even, even, even when terrible things happen, we can, like the disciples, look at this next section here. We can grieve our sinfulness. You're like, wait, what? Yeah, look at, look at what it goes on here. They make the preparations. Look at verse 17 here. Evening hits, he sends out Peter and, and John here. Evening hits, he comes with the rest of the disciples and it says that they were reclining at the table. They're reclining at table. Now this is kind of cool. You should maybe try it you know, tonight at, at home for your dinner. And so they didn't have like you know, big tables with chairs necessarily, but it'd be a low table with some cushions and you know, they kind of lay with their head towards the table and their feet kicked back and they were all reclining around the table. Does that sound comfortable? Does that sound fun tonight? You can try it. Kids, uh, ask your parents if you can eat this way uh, tonight. I'll probably get a lot of texts for that one. That's right. You can try it tonight. But how's this for a table topic then? They're reclining at the table. They're about to take the Passover. And look at this, you know, table topic. He says, hey, guess what? One of you is gonna betray me. That's like a bomb for the table. Try that at your next, like, family gathering, right? <laughs> you know, it's one of the things, like, one of our habits in our household is when we gather for a meal, is, you know, I'll just ask, it's like, hey, kids, what, what was the best part about your day? You know, we let that kind of guide the topic that we, uh, you know, just uh, of our conversation. And Jesus here, he just kind of jumps right in. You know, no, one of you is going to betray me, one who is eating with me. And immediately, look at verse 19, immediately they began to be sorrowful. They are grieved and they examine their own hearts saying, is it I? I love this about it. Immediately, right away, their response is one of sorrow and self-confrontation, and this is good. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, like in John said, well, it's probably Peter. You know, it was meant, yeah, I could see, I could, I could see Andrew doing that. He would, you know, he's, you know, he shorted me a few bucks. They're not looking to one another. They are confronting their own heart. Is it I? 
is it I? They're not like caught off guard or immediately defensive or, or, or immediately blaming somebody else, but they're looking inward. They're on guard, knowing that they are never beyond the worst treachery. Let us too stay on guard. Never think that we have somehow gone beyond the capacity to sin. See, sin isn't just everyone else's problem, right? It resides in all of us. None of us are, are immune. That's why Jesus told us to, you know, if somebody sins against you, to look at what's in your eye, the plank in our own eye, before we try to pluck out the speck in somebody else's. See, we're, none of us are immune, though by the grace of God, we have help and it is diminishing in our life. It is right for us to grieve our sin and our sinfulness because here's what it does, church. This isn't like some depressing thing. This is like, oh, we need, like we're, we're the worst terrible people. No, as we grieve our sin and our capacity to, to sin, let it drive us to the grace of God. See, when we understand the, the depth of our sin, when we understand that I could be capable of this, it makes forgiveness that much sweeter. It makes mercy that much more meaningful. And, and don't miss this here. How merciful is Jesus to bring up his betrayal here? He is giving Judas a final chance. Say, I know what you're about to do, Judas. And I'm gonna lay it out here on the table for you to say, yes, it was me. It'll be me. I've had these thoughts in my heart and I'm sorry. Would you forgive me, Lord? He's, the, the mercy of God is on display by confronting our sin and not just kind of brushing it to the side. He is saying, Judas, Judas, I know. It's not too late. Are you grieved by your sin? Has the, has, have, have the thoughts of what you are capable of been a heavy burden to you? Then do not harden your heart. That is the Spirit calling you to Christ. Come while you hear it. Cast yourself upon Christ as he calls you in his mercy. You, you, you can call upon Christ even now. If, you, if you're feeling that in your, in your soul, even now, you can, you can just stop, pray to the Lord, say, Lord, I, I, see, I see it. I see what I'm capable of. You've opened my eyes to it, but you've also opened my eyes to the beauty of Christ and what you're offering me. And I embrace it. I'm grieved by my sin. I know it could be me. I know it is me. Yet you, Christ, you would die for me. You should grieve your sin. Is it I? You know, in verse 20 here, he continues to be coy with the group to ask is it I is it I is it I and he doesn't actually answer although uh, uh, Matthew 26 tells us that he does tell Judas Judas is apparently one that was sitting next to him he could tell it to Judas Judas then we're told instead of grieving his sin as Satan enters him and then he actually departs from this gathering he just says it could be any one of us in verse 21, then, he, can, he confirms that even these events, even his uh, wicked betrayal, is a part of the sovereign happening by the hand of God to the Son of Man. Do you see that? Do you see it again? Do you see the sovereignty of God? 
Just as we saw in verse 16 that they found everything as just as Jesus had told them in the moment. Here we zoom out in verse 21 and we see the overarching plan of God throughout all of humanity. The redemption plan that for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. This has been the plan all along. Revealed all throughout our our Old Testament, all throughout the scriptures that he would be betrayed by someone close to him. See, Jesus isn't thrown off here. Jesus isn't thrown off by the betrayal. Everything is still going according to plan. He is using this wickedness. It is not unexpected to him because he knows that sin exists. It's the reason for which he came and he uses it for his glory. See, when when things go, uh, you know, seemingly go awry, we tailspin, don't we? We tailspin when expectations aren't met. When we have expectations in the workplace, in our home, in our marriage, we we tailspin when our friends hurt us, when people are offended or offend us. And yet even in the midst of this, Christ is not thrown off. He knows that he will be betrayed. He will experience the, 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 the most painful betrayal by somebody close to him, a man who'd walked with him for many years. And even in the midst of it, He is offering mercy to those who would embrace it and a warning for those who do not. For it would be better if he had not even been born. Hell is real. Hell is horrible. But let us rather hold tight to Christ, church. Amen? Let us hold tight to Christ. See, here's the last point. See, everything is going according to plan. We should follow Christ in the moment. We must grieve our sinfulness and then partake of the gospel. Partake of the gospel. Remember, they are gathered to, uh, to commemorate an ancient tradition, right? Something that we just explained, but on this night, Jesus would inaugurate a new tradition. He would, he would flip the script where he would fulfill what was foreshadowed in the Passover. What the Passover for some 1,500 years over and over and over was pointing them to was this moment. And so what is happening in what we typically call communion is an a, is a ending of an old tradition and an inauguration of something new. And I think in order to help give some meaning here, uh, that a description would be helpful for us, even to kind of understand the, the, what was happening in the Passover, what was a part of their tradition and how it had developed. And so here's how one commentator would, uh, describes what was happening there. He says this, the, the Passover consisted of several features, okay? The, the feast began with a prayer of thanksgiving for God's deliverance, protection, and goodness. The opening prayer was followed by the first of four cups of diluted red wine. A ceremonial washing of the hands came next, signifying the need for holiness and cleansing of sin. You know, as we wash our hands and all that stuff now without, you know, all the the sickness and things going around, it can be a good reminder there for us. But then the hand washing ceremony was followed by the eating of bitter herbs that symbolized the harsh bondage and affliction the Hebrew people endured while enslaved in Egypt. Along with the bitter herbs, loaves of flat bread would also be broken, distributed, and dipped into a thick paste made from ground fruit and nuts. 
The eating of bitter herbs was followed by the singing of the first two psalms of the Hillel and the drinking of the second cup of wine. The Hillel, which is Psalms 113 uh, through 118, consisted of hymns of praise. And at this point, the head of the house would also explain the meaning of the Passover, recounting the events and the things that happened. Next, the roasted lamb and unleavened bread would be served, and after washing his hands again, the head of the house would distribute pieces of the bread to be eaten with the sacrificial lamb. When the main course was completed, a third cup of wine would be received, and to complete the traditional ceremony, the participants would sing the rest of the Hillel, Psalms 115 through 118, and finally, they would drink the fourth cup of wine. And so that gives us some context here as to what they were doing. And you can imagine as they were going through these readings, many of them probably knew uh, what was happening. Some of them could probably recite it. Many of them maybe have even led it in their own house. And so as they are going through, they, they know the, the order of events. And now Jesus here, he goes off script when they are taking the bread and he says, take, this is my body. You know, for us, that has become kind of traditional, right? We remember these words. We've taken communion. Uh, if we've been in the church for any point of time, we would know the, the cup and we would drink of it. And they had these words and he's saying, no, this is the blood of my covenant. You can imagine maybe the look of confusion on their face. You can imagine like, what is going on here? Jesus, wait, that's, that's not the next word, right? It's as if you're singing a song that you know the words to and then your child, you, you go off script and you sing different words and you're like, your children are like, no, no, that's not how it goes. Now you put the words, you know, the right words in your mouth. Now, we must understand that even as Jesus is saying these things, that uh, the, the disciples, they understood that he was speaking figuratively. You know, as Jesus would say, take, this is my body. Is there, in the like, no, this, no, this is unleavened bread, Jesus. They would understand that he would say, this is represents, this represents my body, that this blood represents, this wine, it represents my blood. It is poured out, it literally like on the behalf of many, the many who, the elect, those whom Christ came to rescue. And there's lots of imagery here. There's lots of imagery. The Passover, it's, you know, similar and even now in our communion or what we call, you know, the Lord's Supper or any other names, that it's a play act. It's a, it's a commemoration, it is a, it is a reenactment of the events that happened uh, for them would happen in just another day and for us something that happened in the distant past. But even in doing that, Jesus is setting up our future success by biblically giving us this ongoing reminder, this play act to, to reorient our hearts as we partake. See, they were taking it here. They were partaking of the gospel and Jesus was, uh, was, this was really the first supper with Jesus. Something that we then continue to remember. And Jesus, isn't he just so brilliant for giving us this? Isn't God so good just in his plan to know that we would need an ongoing reminder of the gospel? That we would need it in just the, you know, the fogginess of life and the confusion of the circumstances of our life that we would need something in an ongoing way to just set before us of first importance. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ died for sinners. He knew that we would need something to make us stop and examine ourselves. 
You know, we just kind of get going with the flow. We think we're all good. We think our relationships are all right and he knew we would need something to just uh, help us to pause and make sure, am I right with God and am I right with my brothers and sisters in Christ? He knew we would need something to remind us of our unity. He knew we would need an ongoing reminder of what it is that unites us as a church. It's not our skin color, it's not our bank accounts, it's not uh, any other socioeconomic uh, marker. It is our unity is in Jesus Christ alone. That is what brings us together. He knew we would need something that would picture not just our unity horizontally to one another, but our unity in Christ. He knew that we would need those reminders on the days when we are feeling down and the days that we are feeling like garbage and the days that we are feeling uh, worthless, that we are united, that we are sitting with Christ, united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. He knew we would need something to reorient our hearts continually. He knew that we often get forgetful He knew we would need something, a constant reminder, something that would pique the interest of our children and to the unbelievers around us, something that would give us an open door to our testimony. And as our kids, I was like, Dad, why do we eat this bread? Why do we take this cup? What is it? Now we can now have this open door to talk about Jesus Christ, of our deliverance from sin and what Christ did to set us free to walk in newness of life. See, we partake in the gospel It's beautiful and it's brilliant. It's been ratified by his blood. That's how we can open up the door to say, yeah, well, this is a better covenant. It was a better sacrifice once for all for the forgiveness of sins. And see, Jesus, he invites us into this. It's as beautiful as it is brilliant that Jesus would invite us into what he did. I love it here. He says he gave it to them. He gave it to them. He invited them in to what he did and what he will do. You see this in verse 25 here? I will not drink again. See, he sets aside the cup, the wine, that's the fruit of the vine, and he won't drink it new until the kingdom of God. It's likely a reference to the marriage supper of the lamb when he will drink it again, when we will sit with him in his kingdom and drink that fourth cup. And so as we take communion, isn't this glorious? We are not only thinking backwards, remembering and reorienting to a past event, but what Christ is doing is he is setting us up to look ahead as well for the hope of his return, all those things that we just looked at in chapter 13, but he is, he is pointing our eyes both back and ahead, back in faith and ahead in hope as we stand presently in his love. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it brilliant to see the overarching, sovereign, providential plan of God to not only save us, but also to sanctify us as we walk with him? Isn't it brilliant? Isn't it brilliant, church? And so here's some things. As we take communion here, let me just kind of clarify some of these things because I know uh, in a room even this size that there's probably been a myriad of teaching in your past. When we take communion, here are a few things that we are not doing. We are not eating Jesus, Okay? We are not earning grace. You are not every time we take communion somehow like uh, putting money into your faith bank so that you will be saved. And we are not merely just engaging a tradition. We're not just doing something, as well, this is what you do as Christians. You know, this is like one of those rituals. If you're in the club, this is, you know, like, what do we, this is what we do. This is what we are not doing, but what we are doing is this, is we are worshiping Jesus. 
This is an act of worship. As we humble ourselves before the Lord and as we exalt the work of Jesus Christ, we are, we are worshiping him and we are grateful for the grace of God. It is warming us to, uh, to gratitude and to thankfulness as we proclaim his death until he comes. And we are not just engaging tradition, but we are engaging relationships. So as we come together under, under the Lord's table, we are engaging the relationships, the horizontal, or the horizontal rather, this is horizontal, and the vertical. What is my standing before the Lord? This is why communion is for believers. It's for Christians. It's for those that find themselves under the blood of Jesus Christ and find us united with the church family around us, connected with believers. And so ultimately, when we are partaking of communion, we are partaking of the gospel. The gospel, the good news that Jesus saved us. The good news that sanctifies us. And the good news that sends us. That sends us out. It is not something internal that we just do for ourselves to nourish our own souls. But that with that nourishment and energy, it sends us out as his ambassadors. Living on mission. Carrying this good news of Jesus Christ. So that our unbelieving friends will be saved as we share it with them. And our believing friends, as we point them to the gospel, will be sanctified by this same gospel that God has equipped us with and church this has been the plan all along it's a brilliant plan a plan that only God could come up with amen a plan that only he could set in motion from the beginning of time that would be being carried out through the life of Christ and and on either side of that and in your life and this church is what we participate in in the gospel every time we take communion. It is not just a mundane ritual, but a multifaceted, grace-filled act of worship that points us to Jesus Christ. And so what do you think we're gonna do to close our service today? We're gonna take communion. We're gonna take communion. So I'm gonna ask our worship team to come up. And as they do, why don't we just pray for a moment? Why don't you pray to prepare your heart? Pray to, in light of the things that we've just heard, well, let's do that here. Would you bow your heads? God in heaven, we love you. We, we see your brilliant plan, your good work that you've done on our behalf. Lord, and we don't want to just be cavalier now. We don't want to just bounce from one thing to the next, but we do want to be mindful of your work in our lives. So God, would you be saving even now by your spirit because of what Christ has done, those uh, that you are after right now, God. Call your sheep to yourself, God. For those that believe, God, would you be reminding them again? Would you be filling their heart with gratitude and joy because of what you've done? God, you're so good, you're so wise. You shepherd us so rightly and so kindly to give us things like communion, a simple act, yet a profound and spiritual act. So prepare our hearts now, God, to partake. Pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, our ushers are going to come forward too now and uh, distribute the elements.
And so if you're new with us, uh, all we ask is that you be a believer. You don't have to be a member at Redemption Bible Church. You've just been coming, but as long as you've repented of your sin and believe in Christ, we would invite you to the table. As the, as the tray comes by, make sure you take two. There's two cups that are stacked. That wasn't an accident. And the bottom is the, the bread, which represents the body of Christ, and the juice that represents his blood. And so just go ahead and grab it. Hold on to it. We're going to take it uh, together. It's a symbol of our unity in Christ. Maybe you find yourself today skeptical, unbelieving. Maybe you find yourself at odds with another believer. It would honor the Lord to uh, just let the cup pass you by, to go make it right, and then to come back together in unity. I'd be happy to take communion with you as you walk that out together.